Welcome to Calvary Church, where we are dedicated to loving God and loving people. If you want to know more about us, please check us out online at calvary.ca. Now let's check out this week's message. Morning, church. My name is Dave McDonald, and I am the founder and the director of the Fasarius Chapter House, and really a son of Calvary. That's why I'm uh, having the privilege of talking to you today. Uh, I cut my teeth in ministry at Calvary Christian Church. Steve and Susan are good friends. Of course, I grew up there. Many of you know my my mom and my dad, uh, Gordon and Glenda. Hi, mom. And uh, of course, my longest, bestest friend uh, is on staff with you, Vince McLaren. And he's had a privilege of coming out here to see us in Michigan at the Fasarius Chapter House. And you can check out all the great stuff that we're doing, training creative pastors at FasariusChapterHouse.com. And um, I, I heard this story that I thought, oh, by way of introduction, I'd, I'd share with you today um, about an elderly lady uh, living in Croatia during a time of great unrest during the Balkans. And and the story goes that this, this old lady was in her 80s and it was her job every day to go down to the village square and pull on the big church bell and ring the church bell announcing to all the people in her village that it was time to remember their creator, to honor God and spend a few moments every day at noon in prayer. And of course, uh, you're familiar with the civil unrest in the Balkans. And uh, the story goes that um, during the time of all this fighting, the bad guys would roll into this tiny little town and shoot up all the buildings and chase everybody out of the city streets. And then the last thing they would do was, was shoot up the church. And it got so intense that every single day, these guys would come in with their tanks and their bombs and their guns, and they'd shoot everything up that, that eventually the cord that held this giant church bell to the roof of the church snapped and the bell fell down to the ground and cracked. Um, but that didn't stop this little old lady because every day she would still go out there and she would grab the clapper of the bell and she would smash the broken bell uh, with the clapper like it was a hammer, reminding people no matter how bad things got, no matter what their circumstances were, no matter what was going on in the world, nothing could be more important than remembering your creator and coming to God with a heart full of faith. And church, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm grasping that clapper right now with you. I'm increasingly grieved by how often Christians forget about Jesus. Christians rarely forget about Christianity. Christians rarely forget about politics. Christians rarely forget about their country, be it Canada, the United States, uh, Uganda, wherever. But we, we so easily forget the most important thing, our maker, our creator, our sustainer, our Lord, our savior, Jesus. And so what I wanna do today is, is really bang that clapper a little bit and, and refocus us on Jesus Christ. And, and who Jesus is and, and the life into which Jesus calls us and, and to remind us of some of the features of Jesus' ministry that, that really ought to elicit in you and I a sense of, of holy wonder and, and noble ambition to serve and to please and to work with God as he heals the world. So one of the things I was thinking about was, was, was how often Jesus asks questions. Like, in the gospel accounts, and this is, of course, a rough estimation. Some of it depends on translation. Some of it depends on, you know, if we count questions once or twice. But Jesus asks a ton of questions. He asks 307 questions. That, that, that's, that's a lot of curiosity for somebody who, um, you know, made everything and maybe knows everything. 
So you, you got to wonder why, why does Jesus ask so many questions? Now he's asked 183 questions and he only answers four, which I think is hilarious. Like people are just peppering him with questions all the time and he doesn't give them answers. It's not even that he doesn't give them good answers. Often he answers their question with another question. It's almost like he doesn't have answers for all your questions. He has questions for all your answers, which I think is hilarious because it demonstrates that what God wants from his people is that we'd be inquisitive, curious, open to the idea that we might not know everything, open to the idea that we, there might be new perspectives, there might be new understandings, there might be new things that, that maybe we don't fully have our heads around. And so I think a faithful Jesus posture, a faithful Christian posture is to look out at the world and, and start to ask like, what's going on? Who's involved? Uh, what don't I know? What can I learn? Um, and so I, I thought just this morning, we, we take a sampling uh, of five of, of those 307 questions and use that as, as kind of a way to, to refocus ourselves on the people God is calling us to become. So the first of these five questions is, who do you say that I am? And Matthew uh, chapter 16, you know, Jesus is asking his, his good friend, Peter, hey, what's, what's the word on the street? You know, who, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, well, you know, some people think you're like uh, Jonah. Some people think you're like uh, Elijah. Um, you know, Jesus says, well, yeah, but, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Now, Jesus hears that answer and immediately says in his, his mind, this is something I can work with. So he tells him, I tell you, you'll be called um, Peter, which means rock, you know, and you're the rock upon which I will build my church. Based on Peter's confession of faith, Jesus realizes that this is somebody I can work with. I can build on this. And, you know, you, you and I have really got to get straight on who we think Jesus is. Because there's a lot of people out there in the church as well as outside of the church that have all kinds of fuzzy or goofy ideas about Jesus, or they're quite willing to set Jesus aside. But he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the maker and sustainer of all that there is. The, the, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. How are, you gonna, how are you gonna get away from Jesus and at all call yourself a Christian, which is a word that means little Christ, an imitator of Jesus Christ. Um, so, you, I mean, you, you and I, we, we really gotta figure out who, who do we think Jesus is? Do we, do we think he's a great moral teacher? Do we think he's a person of historical significance? Um, you know, do, do we think that he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? I mean, I mean it's, it's worth getting clear on that because until you're clear on that, honestly, God can't do much with you, at least not in the church. Certainly can't build your church on somebody that doesn't even know who Jesus is to them. And, you know, for me, I think about my relationship with Jesus on so many different levels. I think about my, uh, my education, studying Jesus in the Gospels. I, I think about my own life and journey of faith as, as a person, you know, gr growing up in your church, going to Sunday school, going to vacation Bible school, going to Acme Youth Church, doing all the great things that, that Calvary Christian Church has always supplied for people. And I think all, all of those experiences deepen my faith with Jesus. But, you know, there's, there's a, a, a deeply personal experience many, but, but one in particular that always anchors and solidifies me that, that for me, he's, he's Lord. Um, there's just, there's just something about Jesus I, I can't get away from. 
And I'm sure you've heard the old yarn that, you know, sometimes people will go off to, to seminary uh, and it'll become a, a cemetery for their faith. You know, the more biblical education you get, the more theological education you get, the less a person of faith you become. You know, sadly, that's really true. Um, a lot of times people spend more time studying scripture and they get divorced from God rather than more deeply wed to God. And, you know, my, my experience was the exact opposite. The more I studied the scriptures, um, the more I spent time in, uh, on my knees in prayer, um, the more the, the person of Jesus became so, so compelling for me. Because Jesus is more than the sum of his teachings. I mean, his teachings are spectacular. They're, they're, the, they're really just the summation of the best of Judaism. But, I mean, the, the person of Jesus, what he did, what he stood for, how he behaved, how he interacted with other people, that's, that's what I find compelling. Um, and, I, and I always try and, and guide and govern my life not, not just to emulate him, um, but to in incarnate him, to live the life of Jesus until it becomes my own. And that's, that's really, um, I think, what Peter is confessing here. I think, I think when you live like that, I think God's got something, God's got something to work with. God's got something upon which he can, he can build. And what he builds is his church. What he builds is the community of his people coming together. All right, that's question number one. Who do you say that I am? And I think that's the most critical question uh, for believers today. You know, do you think Jesus is a political revolutionary? Do you think that Jesus is a, um, a clever person like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr.? Or do you, do you think he's something else entirely, a North Star upon which you can set a compass bearing uh, for your life? Question number two, uh, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, in Matthew chapter 20, two blind men come up to Jesus and he's surrounded by a crowd of people as I think he almost always was and they start clamoring you know son of David have mercy on us son of David have mercy on us and uh, everybody in the crowd tells him to you know shut up go quit bothering him we're trying to listen to this sermon <laughs> be quiet he's gonna say something really cool or tell this neat story shut up but Jesus gets everybody calmed down and he says what what do you want me to do for you and they say, we want to see. We want to see. Now, th that question, what do you want me to do for you, appears several times in the Gospels. That's, that's part of the reason why it's a rough guesstimate to say that it's 307 questions Jesus asked us. Maybe you're counting this one a few times. Um, but that question happens several times in the Gospels. This is the only time that the guys give a direct answer. Every other time Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, uh, well, I don't know. It's, it's my fault that I'm sick or it's not my fault that I'm sick or what do you want me to do for you? I don't know. I've had this whole horrible life. But only here do these people give a clear answer. And because they give a clear answer, Jesus is moved with compassion and restores their sight. I think when you and I go to God in prayer, we should have a, a pretty clear idea of what we're hoping for. We should have a pretty clear idea of what we're hoping for and what could be better than sight, perception, vision, a sense of uh, futurity. You know, when you, you can't see, you bump into all kinds of things. You're going to have all kinds of stumbles, all kinds of obstacles. You're not going to know where you're going. You're not going to know who's around you. You're not going to know what you, where, where you are or who you can trust. But when God gives you the ability to see, both literally and figuratively, now all of a sudden you... You're aware of your context. You're aware of your people. You're aware of your relationships. You have you have vision. And again, in, in the figurative sense, we, vision is the, the ability to 
locate yourself, but in the figurative sense, vision is a sense to, to project yourself into the future. And I think one of the things that God gives us when we pray and we ask for is, is vision. It's a sense of where we're going, who we are, who we can trust, what our context is like, and, 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 and what is the way forward. And so when we pray, man, I think it's, it's worth praying for vision, for perception, for, for insight. And I tell you, these last couple of years, I, I've been learning that lesson uh, all over again. When I was 18, I started out as an intern at Calvary Church uh, working with Vince. And, uh, and then I, I slowly but surely um, kept graduating into more and more uh, ministry at Calvary Church. When I was 19, I received my minister's license. Uh, now that I have gray hair, I'm not sure about the wisdom of giving a minister's license to a 19-year-old, but I'm, I'm still grateful somebody did. Uh, I got ordained when I was 21. I came on uh, um, half-time staff when I was doing my undergrad at Trinity Western. I came on half-time staff at, at Calvary and I was running Alpha and our small groups ministry at the time and our, our college and career ministry 2020. And um, then I became the worship leader and I was a, a full-time at our church. And, and with each little bit, I felt like God gave me a vision, you know, a, a sense of understanding about who I could work with and how we could build things together. And of course, then my family and I, we moved to Michigan in 2005 and went to this wild and crazy church where we had so many adventures. But, but all over again, I had to learn how to see how to, how to see and understand the, the context in which I found myself because the, the Midwest of the United States is way different than uh, God's country where y'all live right now. I said y'all not because I meant to, but because I've been infected by America. And then uh, in uh, 2019, um, um, I bought this old Victorian mansion. Uh, you see me sitting in it here now, the, the chapter house, because I, I thought I want to I bring together creative pastors and I want to train them and I want to encourage them and I want to do for other pastors what, what my dad did for me which is to, to father me and to look after them. And you know, I'm, I'm not sure that anybody did that for my dad. Maybe not in the, in the, in the same way that, that he did it for me. And I thought, I, that's, a, that's a gift I'd like to give. I'd like to provide other pastors with some, some resources and some encouragement and, and some training. Um, and then in, in 2021, you know, or maybe 2022, pardon me, I stepped away from local church ministry after almost 30 years. Um, and now I'm I'm, I'm back at square one. I feel like I'm 19 years old again, trying to figure out how to do ministry in a new context. And so every day I'm praying the prayer of these two blind men. Every day I'm going, Lord, I wanna see. I wanna, I wanna see what's ahead of me. I wanna have wisdom and insight. I wanna be able to perceive the best way forward, to know and to understand my context. I wanna know who I can trust and I wanna know who's around me. I wanna know who my supporters are. I wanna know who are the people that have vision to bring a second chapter house to Canada or a third chapter house to the UK or a fourth chapter house to the Caribbean or South America. Lord, Lord give, me, give me vision, help me see. And I think probably the same is true for you. you. You probably are at some kind of crossroads with your family or with your work or with your schooling, with your education. Man, don't, don't be bashful about asking God to see because that's a prayer that Jesus loves to answer. When you are blind and you don't know where you are and you ask God for help, Scripture says he's moved with compassion. So again, question number one, who do you say that I am? Question number two, what do you want me to do for you? Question number three, what does this have to do with me?
<laughs> this is my favorite one. This cracks me up so much. I love the implication that there might be some things that Jesus is like, I, I don't care about this at all. <laughs> That's amazing. I wish maybe more Christian people had a, a healthier sense of, of what early Christians called adiaphora. It's a word that means things indifferent. It means that there, there are some things indifferent to our salvation. Meaning there are some things about which we can agree to disagree. Some things that just aren't worth fighting over. Like politics, for example. Man, you ought to be able to have different political opinions and still hold together at the table of fellowship and not make every single issue a mission-critical, make-it-or-break-it faith issue. And you, of course, might feel differently about that, but you're wrong. And so I just want to gently poke you and remind you um, that things like politics or things like the personal execution of your finances or or things like your favorite NHL team, man, these, these are not critical issues of faith. And I think Jesus, just by asking, what does this have to do with me, is, is a nice way of reminding you and I um, that maybe, maybe sometimes we over-celebrate the importance of everything. And we shouldn't. Now, the context in which Jesus asks this third question is at the wedding of Cana, a story told in John chapter 2. And what happens is Jesus goes to this big party and there's this big wedding and it goes on for days and days and days and days and days. And then the host runs out of wine, which is a big faux pas, feels very embarrassed. And Jesus' mom comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus replies, like, this isn't my problem, lady. I mean, mom, mommy, mommy, I love you very much. Please, um, what does this have to do with me? Now, I love that Jesus is responsive to his mother, that he is gonna submit to the authority and the request of his mother. Um, I love that Jesus is being, I think, a little bit playful here. I mean, I've never been to an eight day long wedding reception, but I imagine everybody's a little playful after they run out of wine, but Jesus, um, he says, what does this have to do with this me? And, and his mom doesn't even answer. She just turns around to everybody and she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Which is a good reminder that, that there's never a bad time to obey. There's never a bad time to respond. Because you never know when the unexpected may occur. That's why it's unexpected. You never know when God might interrupt your life with the miraculous. You never know when a party might become a super party, as is the case here when Jesus supernaturally turns water into wine. It's his first miracle. It's significant that it's his first miracle. It's significant that it's a party miracle. It's significant that it's something that doesn't seem religious. Instead, it seems quite trivial, quite jocular, quite jovial, because it reminds us that God is ultimately a party God. I mean, think about all the parables that Jesus told. Most of them are about wedding feasts and festivals. Jesus is always eaten with the wrong people. He's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. You don't get the reputation of being a glutton because all you do is eat salad and you avoid gluten. No, no, you get the reputation of being a glutton because you're always at parties stuffing your face. And you don't get the reputation of being a drunkard because Jesus is sitting in the corner drinking Lipton. No, no, there's something about Jesus that says celebration, fecundity, festivities. These are good things. These are godly things. And so Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? And I guess, well, in this case, everything. Because by Jesus' actions, again, not just by his teachings, but by who he is and what he does and how he responds, the person of Jesus, the behaviors of Jesus, the personality of Jesus, by his very actions, he reminds us that ultimately every single moment is a moment in which we can be delighted and surprised. 
by the superabundance of God. So again, we're, we're asking these questions because we want to recenter our Christian faith on Jesus. We're saying, who, who do you say that I am? Well, he's Lord, the author and finisher of our faith. What do you want me to do for you? Well, we want to be able to see, to see and have wisdom and insight, perspective and, and vision. And what, what does this have to do with me? Well, I guess if we're open, if we're willing, everything, everything can have something to do with the mischievous glory and festivity of a good and loving God. Question number four, what do the scriptures say? This is kind of an interesting one. Um, one of the teachers of the law comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This is in Luke's gospel, chapter 10. And Jesus says, what's the scripture say? I love that. I love that. It seems so simple. Now, of course, he's asking a teacher of the law, what do the scriptures say? Ostensibly, a teacher of the law ought to know the law, but so, so should you and I. I mean, really, you and I. Now, if you want a, a little tip, okay, this is this. you just put, build a little box in your mind, um, but if you don't want to become one of the internet crazy people or one of the people for whom um, the Bible is fodder for psychosis, then let, let me give you a tip. If you're trying to build a biblical theology of something and you find a verse that supports uh, something that you say, that's probably not sufficient for you to really have a robust understanding of the scripture. You will probably want to find some material in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, in the prophets, um, in the gospels, and at least in the epistles. Once you got, you know, four or five, six different verses that kind of gather you up towards a point. Now you're approximating a good biblical theology. And if you want to be a real good and healthy engager of scripture, then, then don't just look for verses. Don't suffer from versitis, um, but also look at the stories and the images and the metaphors of scripture. And that'll give you, a, a, I think, a better perspective. Anyway, that's, that's an aside. That's for free. Let's get back to this question that the teacher of the law asked. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? A loaded question, really. Um, and Jesus said, well, what do the scriptures say? And he uh, recounts the Shema, is sort of the essence of Judaism. And interestingly, he also adds to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the teacher of the law says, well, the scriptures say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, your soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes we imagine that Jesus is the first person to ever say, Love your neighbor as yourself. But no, it appears three different times in the Old Testament. Um, and it was interesting that the teacher of the law here is, is sort of demonstrating that Jesus isn't the innovator of neighborly love, um, but rather somebody who is reminding the people of God to perpetuate uh, neighborly love. So he gives a really good answer, a really short, uh, concise, good answer, a good Jewish answer, a healthy Jewish answer. And Jesus says, you're right. You do this and, and you'll live forever. I think that's amazing. Now, before we even uh, uh, ask the questions about what this means about heaven or going to heaven when you die, I just want you to know that I think Jesus' orientation here is not to talk about eternity even though it, or, or e eternality, not life after death. I think Jesus is talking about super abundant life. Jesus is talking about the best quality of life imaginable L later, yes, but, but also right here and now. So when this guy said, what do I do to inherit life? Jesus says, do this and you will live. You're going to live. So go, go ahead and read that sometime when you get ten, uh, uh, a moment. Luke chapter 10. Do a little bit of study on it. Go to BibleGateway.com and look up the Greek and Hebrew uh, meanings of those words. Go to BlueLetterBible.org and look those up. There's some great articles on eternal life. Um, if, you, if you go to, um, oh, what's that that website? Anyway, the one with all the whiteboard drawings. I'll remember it later and come back to it. Anyway, Jesus says, do this and you'll live. And the teacher of the law now gets a little clever and he goes, yeah, but um, like who's my neighbor? 
And Jesus responds with a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, you know the story. Um, and at the end, you know, there's a, a teacher of the law who sees a man hurting, doesn't help him. And there's a Pharisee, like a priest, who sees a man hurting and doesn't help him. But then there's a Samaritan, a.k.a. a, a scumbag, you know, a dirty man with tattoos, uh, who sees somebody hurting and helps him. And, uh, and Jesus asked the teacher of the law, now who, who really was his neighbor? And he says, well, of course, it was, it was the man who showed him mercy. And Jesus replies, go down and do likewise. Now, what I find so fascinating about this whole story is that the teacher of the law was never wrong. He was never wrong. All Jesus says to the guy is, you're right. You're right in knowing how you'll have eternal life. You're, you're right in that your understanding of the scripture is meant to be applied. You're right that the neighbor is the person who actually shows mercy, not who talks a good religious game. Um, and sometimes we imagine that all these teachers of the law in the scripture are Jesus' adversaries. But here, Jesus only commends him. And I think what that demonstrates is when you devote yourself to the study of the scriptures, when you invest yourself in the story of God, when you, when you stop looking for easy answers, but start engaging the deeper worth of the Bible, um, you're going to be commended by God, not chastised for being an intellectual or whatever gobbledygook sometimes people make up and worry. All right, last but not least, um, in, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is sitting around with his friends um, and they're, they're having a meal and a woman comes in. In the, in the Methane account, this woman is not identified. You just say a woman. A woman comes in and she breaks an alabaster jar of perfume and pours it all over Jesus' feet and then begins to dry um, his feet with her hair. That, that's a strange thing. I don't think that that was any less strange in the ancient world. If you're having a backyard picnic and your neighbor lady comes over and she starts touching your feet, that's weird. It was weird then, it was weird now. A hundred years from now, that'll still be weird. There's no scenario in which feet touching is not weird. Perfume hair, feet touching is always a taboo. So his disciples freak out. Jesus, what are you doing? Get this lady out of here. And he asks the fifth and final question that I'd like to look at today. He says, why are you bothering this woman? She's doing a beautiful thing. And it's been my experience over the last uh, three decades in ministry that, that a lot of times we really like to bother other people, particularly women or minorities or you know people who are uh, somehow on the margins of society. We, we really like to bother others. We really like to criticize others. I mean, if you type into Google, why are Christians so, the first automatic answer you get is hateful. Um, we see somebody doing something we don't like and we attack them. And Jesus chastises his disciples for this. And I think today he's chastising you and I also. Why are you bothering this woman? Because A, this woman, she's not doing anything wrong. And B, what this woman is doing is actually something beautiful, an act of worship. And we ought to be worshiping like her, which is why C, Jesus goes on to say, every time my story is told, this episode will be remembered. And I'd say, it's like Jesus is saying, in essence, like mind your own business because she's better than you are anyway. And I feel really convicted by that. 
because there's a lot of times that I see behaviors of people, uh, you know, out there in the wild world, and I, I want to, man, I want to, I want to stop them. You know, I want to finger wag at them. I want to remind them uh, that's not how they're they're supposed to be doing it. Um, but of course, I don't like that when anybody does does that to me. That never feels good. And so I constantly feel the nudging and the prompting of the Holy Spirit saying, Dave, why are you bothering these people? Dave, why are you bothering this woman? Dave, why are you bothering this guy? What is it to you, man? This isn't your business. Furthermore, you ought to be worshiping instead of criticizing. You ought to be adoring instead of uh, cajoling. You ought to be a lover, not a hater. So church, I just, I just look at all these, these questions of Jesus and, and, and clearly there's a, about 302 others we could go through. Um, but I wanna use these questions as a way to refocus us on who Jesus actually was and what Jesus actually did and how Jesus actually lived, how Jesus treated others, how Jesus interacted with others. And I wanna, like that old lady in the illustration I used to open up in, in Croatia, I wanna grab the clapper of this church bell and, and smack it and say, remember your creator. Remember Jesus, Jesus, who's your Lord, the author and finisher of your faith. Remember Jesus, who gives sight to the blind and will you give you vision and perception for the future. Remember Jesus, who, who unexpectedly can perform super abundant miracles that delight and surprise you. Remember Jesus, who commands those who attend to the scripture. Remember Jesus, who's cautiously and gently reminding us to mind our own business and be lovers of him, worshipers of God and friends to all people. And um, I know that in the same way that I'm banging that bell over and over again, there's, there's probably something in your life that, that needs a little banging to. There's probably a situation where you're saying, I need the attention of our holy God and of our great Christ. And I wanna promise you friends, um, you're not invisible. You're not alone. Our prayers go with you and God's spirit is all over you. So let me close in prayer as we again give our lives to Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the privilege of knowing and serving you. And we recognize we fall so hilariously short of the good things you intend for us and desire to work us. So we open ourselves up to you and say, Lord Jesus, please change us, redeem us, restore us, use us, work through us, help us, um, heal us, and allow us to cooperate with you as you work to heal the world. These things we pray in the powerful and exclusive and the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Grace and peace, church. It's wonderful to at least be virtually home with you all.